Welcome to Shelf Life from Bristol Libraries. I'm Catherine. I'm Paul. And I'm Sean. This is a podcast about libraries, books and people. What are people taking out of the modern public library and what are they giving back? Who's keeping the shelves and spaces between them vibrant and full of life? Plus, we'll be delving into news about books, authors and events across Bristol's 27 libraries. So if you're interested in books or in people, lend us your ears. We hope you enjoy this episode of Shelf Life. Welcome to Shelf Life. Uh, This is episode six now, I believe. How is everyone doing today? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, I'm doing good, thanks. And I'm excited that we've got Dr. Edson Burton with us today. Um, So Edson, how are you doing this morning? And could you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, I'm doing fine. Um, it's a busy day. Um, lockdown's been strange, not quite as, um, well, busy in a different way. And uh, yes, yeah, so I'm a writer, historian, uh, I do some film programming and performing. Oh, great. Um, it's sometimes it's hard to kind of assemble everything together. I think basically I'm, I'm a storyteller mm. and it plays out in different mediums. We'll talk about books and about your various projects, as well as the Colston statue coming down and Black Lives Matter. And we'll finish with a couple of your poems. Cool. What have you guys been reading lately? I've been reading Bag Eye at the Wheel by Colin Grant. So it's an autobiographical story growing up in Luton uh, in the 70s. Really impactful for me because it just captures a lot of the points of my childhood uh, I grew up in Bedford, and it's very much his relationship with his father and uh, the eccentric world of that first generation of Caribbean migrants. That sounds really interesting. Was there another book as well you were... Yeah, I've about? been... Taki's Revolt. So Taki's Revolt is a study of the revolt in 1760 by enslaved Coromantee, uh, that is someone from the Guinea post of Akan ancestry. Uh, a revolt led by Taki and groups of other enslaved um, Coromanti people on the island of Jamaica. And what the author of Vincent Brown does is to trace the revolt from West Africa to Jamaica. And along with other narratives of the transatlantic slave trade, by people like Richard Hart, and Richard Hart is a fantastic Jamaican historian, not with us anymore, who lived in Bristol actually in his last decade. Part of a new vogue in historical writing, I think, to connect African diasporic people to the African continent, but in a way that isn't sort of mystical, but is grounded in empirical evidence. That sounds really interesting. It does. It reminds me a little bit of... The Many-Headed Hydra by Peter Leinbaum, which mm. the Hydra Bookshop in Bristol is named after, which you know, uh, a lot of uh, slave revolts and so on. And I think as we are in the moment, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about Black Lives Matter, but I guess it's one of the important things around how we, we look at curriculum that we do through the agency of enslaved people. We find a balance within that. I think what one doesn't want to do is to kind of think there was so much agency that they were practically free. But how do you put the abolitionist process in the parliament alongside this very strong push in the plantations as people revolted? Sometimes the system has to make concessions in order to remain ahead of the game. 
So if there isn't a push from the enslaved populations, how long would it have taken for abolition to occur? And so, yes, I think a, not a revision, but a, 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 in terms of a revision in order to placate an energy, but really sort of something which gets us closer to kind of a, a more complete account is to put the, those agencies in tandem, the abolitionist and the uh, revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, just moving on to our, the, uh, the other things we've been reading. I've been listening to audiobooks on the RB Digital app and the BorrowBox app, um, which you can listen to for free with the library card. So on RB Digital, I listened to I Am China by Sholu Guo. And that that is a really good read. It has a really interesting setup of these two Chinese lovers being separated. One of them is exiled from China and then kind of moves from pillar to post in Europe between different detention centres and other situations. And you've got their letters to each other and their diaries. And then you've got a translator in London who's then translating these. So you've got these three different characters who end up being across three different continents and getting their stories and their relationships with each other. So it's really interesting how that unfolds and how that's sort of delivered through the narrative. So, yeah, that was a really good read. And, yeah, Edson, you mentioned Black Lives Matter. We've got a reading list on Libby and on Borrowbox relating to that. So I've been listening to some of the books on Borrowbox and the latest one that I listened to was Brit-ish by Afwa Hirsch, oh. which I really loved it. It was, it reminded me a bit of, of Natives by Akala, which I talked about in the last episode. So similarly to Natives, it sort of combines memoir with bits of analysis and history to look at racism in modern Britain. But unlike Natives, where Akala was looking at it through the eyes of a yeah a working class man, where she's looking at it as a middle class woman. So there's sort of different microaggressions that she takes apart there, and she's also got her experience as a journalist. And I feel like there's journalistic elements where she brings in interviews and things, and she looks at life in Oxford University, for example, and life in these sort of different worlds, and yeah, writes it really. Brilliantly, I certainly got a lot from that book. Can I just say, I think one of the sort of developing ways in which, in film and I think in books, you know, whether it's um, Zadie Smith novels and work, and cinematically, Shola Amu's work, I guess we're just starting to see this diversification of black British stories. Yeah, it's just made me think of Bernadine Everisto's um, recent Man Booker winner, so Girl, Woman, Other. So there's lots of different characters, but they all kind of interlink. But yeah, in terms of like plurality of voices, I think that, yeah, just a really interesting book. Yeah. Yeah. And she has come to the Central Library in the past. She has. Yeah. Yeah, I I was her warm up person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, Sean, what are you reading at the moment? Um, one of the books that I've got on the go right now is 1984 by George Orwell. Um, and, yeah, and I've been meaning to read this book since like since years and years ago when I first heard the David Bowie album Diamond Dogs. That's an album which is set in the dystopian future and it has songs like 1984 and Big Brother, which relate to 1984 by George Orwell. I'm about three chapters into 1984 and I'm really enjoying it so far. It's a book about totalitarianism and mass surveillance and there's lots of phrases in it that I've heard before and referenced from the book like Newspeak and Big Brother 
And yeah, I've heard them before, but I've never really known what they mean. Things like double think, which is the ability to hold two just completely contradictory thoughts simultaneously, but believing them both to be true. I'm looking forward to reading a bit more of that and getting stuck into it. Can I just say how brave you are to read 1984 in the middle of a pandemic? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> But I guess it is a, it's a timely book, I guess. Yes. It's something quite yeah. important to read. And I, th- I think it's really interesting the way that um, people pick up certain books at certain points in time. Like, for example, I know that there was a huge spike in sales for 1984 just after Donald Trump was elected. So it's quite, like, it's quite interesting to see like, the cultural response, especially in kind of readership and what people are choosing to, to read. Um, but yeah, I have to confess, I've actually never read 1984. So it's one of those that I just, I feel like... I will take it on at some point. I think that's the great thing about libraries, that if you are able to borrow books and if they are a a big read and you only have little bits of time, whether it's on public transport or before you go to bed, to Mm. be able to read it over a long period. Keep on renewing it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It should be a jingle for that. (laughs) Keep on renewing it. Just keep going. Yeah, yeah. Keep (laughs) on renewing don't stop while your library's open. I don't know. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> you can record something for us, please. <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? That'd be great. So I'm reading something completely and totally different. A brilliant book called The Bass Rock. And it's by Evie Wilde. It's exactly the kind of fiction I like because it's told, it's got like three different narrative strands. So it's told through the voices of these three different women at different points in history. So the first story is about a woman, well, young woman, she's 17, 18, and she's fleeing because she's been accused of being a witch. So that's sort of taking place in the 1700s. The second narrative is set just after the Second World War, and this young woman is newly married and moves to Scotland to near the Bass Rock, um, which is this kind of isolated island just out at sea so she's in this kind of big creepy stately home by herself well sort of trying to settle in with her new family and then the third narrative is modern day and it's kind of like a descendant of the family who's returning to that house to kind of clear it out and put it back on the market for sale so it's yeah these three different strands the setting is quite a lot to do with it so the bass rock so there's feelings of like sort of Scottish islands, very remote. It's just kind of got a lot of gothic feel to it. There's also quite a lot of references to ghosts in kind of an underplayed sort of way, but it's more about the history of the house. So there's kind of these ghosts present throughout. Yeah, it's not exactly light, but it is very compelling and really readable. I would highly recommend it, basically. So I couldn't put it down last week. So it's time for the library update. Ta-da! Ta-da! Um, so what we want to talk about today is um, we've currently got the summer reading challenge on which is a summer long event for children. It's now live but is happening virtually. Usually it happens in the libraries but this year because of coronavirus it is happening virtually. You can join online now and we'll put the links um, in the show notes afterwards It's all free. There's lots and lots of activities which will encourage children to be reading. We'll be talking about this more in the next episode. I'd like to hear more about your projects. Can you start by talking maybe with what projects have you done with libraries? 
over the years, I've had quite a strong relationship with Bristol Libraries, Bristol Central Library in particular. And that began when I worked at the Kumba Centre in uh, St Paul's. And it's an African Caribbean uh, art centre. And I was the librarian there. Really, I'm more like a, a counsellor. Like, Tell me about my identity. Ah! Well, once upon a time. And um, I did a project with the Bristol Festival of Literature a few years ago where I was the first facilitator of a story. This was then shared with another library and another facilitator and another group of people who responded. And it travelled around Bristol libraries with different facilitators and groups until by the end of the festival there was this great big sharing of what had become uh, quite a, a tangled and convoluted and quite comic and light and dark story. And that was yeah. a, a lovely thing to be part of. And a project that I've been working on for a few years now is The Last Blue Song of a Lost Afronaut. It's a sort of Afrofuturist imagining. I was playing with the idea that if you had a colony of people who came from across the African diaspora, left Earth, and then a millennia later had settled on another planet, I kind of started to realise that the implications of this future imagining created a space for lots of people to play. So what would be the future library of this Afrofuturist colony? What would be the architecture? So it was taking this whole idea of if you were going to reset the African diasporic experience around a, an African or an African diasporic aesthetic ontology and so on, what would that look like? If we could design a utopic society, one of the things that we were going to look at was how we could run some workshops to invite people, audiences to come along, audiences, participants to come along and workshop with me some of these ideas. So the last blue song is gestating. It's also, the lockdown has also meant a bit of time to look at some of the groups that I work at and for us to maybe do some planning out of sight of delivery. So I'm one of the founder members of Kiki Bristol, a space for QT Park, that's queer, trans and intersex people of colour. Do some planning about building capacity. And also I'm a member of Come the Revolution, I'm one of the founding members of that. We're a collective of black curators and film programmers. Lockdown has meant, oh, what can we do? We can't exhibit films, but actually we can start thinking about what we will do when we come back and just test the waters around online groups and so on, but just finding ways of keeping an, your name in the public imagination. I think that's one of the key things. Mm. Speaking of um, film work and the watershed, you're also involved in Africa Eye. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I'm on the board of Africa Eye. I've always loved the Africa Eye Film Festival uh, in November. It's a week-long programme, but with a special concentration on the weekend. We programme a series of films from across the African continent. Um, of course, across Africa is a very wide range of peoples and countries and experiences. And lots of wraparound workshops, live music events, and so on. But I'd say, look, the key thing about Africa Eye is that a lot of people are interested in Africa, either as a, a homeland or as a place they've visited, or in terms of 
trade justice in various different ways. But Africa Eye gives you an African perspective on contemporary experience and sometimes historical. And an African film now is just growing in so many ways, like African horror, African sci-fi movies, um, really great thrillers and action movies. And I just urge people just to go and check out the Africa Eye website and look at some of the films that we've seen before. I think people often think, oh, is it going to be really like different? Is it going to be like a blockbuster? No, it's better. You know, this is like independent film that actually feeds the soul and asks big questions. Like we talked about, you know, reading I Am China and Bath Rock and Bernard Navarristo's work. And really what we're talking about is introductions to difference. We're here and writers take us on a journey to very different lives outside of our subjectivity. Africa Eye does that in the cinema. So Edson, you write as an academic and a historian and as a curator or a, or a critic, but also creatively. So in the form of, of radio scripts and radio drama and writing for theatre and poetry as well, which hopefully we'll hear a little bit of later. Do you find that your academic writing informs your creative work or do you write creatively in response to some of the stuff that you're researching? Yeah, good question. So what I, I find is that we must be precise with facts and evidence in order to understand the zeitgeist of past times. Let's say, for example, transatlantic slave trade or the treatment of women. And you always find that actually, maybe not in the mainstream of discourse, but there's always been alternative ways of thinking, but our society has just ignored them and uh, been pulled along by where economic interest is, or for example, But to say that there was never a recourse to an alternative to the brutalities and marginalizations, I think is untrue. But we do have to understand what exactly happened. So I think historical writing can surprise us as well. And that's the key thing. But sometimes sources can take you so far. And as we know, with the experiences of gender and uh, race, so much is in the chemistry of the moment. For example, you know, if you, you're in a shop and you see somebody welcomed very warmly and, and then it's your turn to get served and it's like suddenly this stern uh, look. Writing is a, a stronger tool for being able to describe those experiences. I think Claudine Rankin's book, Citizen, which talks about the cumulative effect of microaggressions, is a way of kind of understanding, again, how we land in a place based on not today, but many, many days. I didn't understand what the South meant pre-civil uh, rights movement until I read Richard Wright's Black Boy. You know, you watch these movies and they always create like um, stock rednecks and hyper-respectable or hyper-victim Black characters. And then you read Richard Wright's evocation of a dignified and proud Black community And then suddenly a grown man has to step off the sidewalk, will be called boy by somebody who's half his age. An old woman will have to give up her seat. And always underneath this is a threat of violence. So to live in a state of terror in a so-called liberal democracy, I didn't understand that till reading Black Boy. So these are the things that writing can evoke, which historical writing can take you so far but to take you as close to being in that place at that time. 
the, mo the emotion, the little texture of it. That's why I feel I, ca I need both. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah, two sides of the same coin, I guess. They complete a picture. And hmm. um, tell us briefly about your oral history heritage work at Trinity. I first came to Trinity to uh, deliver a project called um, What's Your Trinity Story? And it was about people's recollections of Trinity. As a community centre, as a music venue, as an art space, there have been so many lives that have been impacted upon and intersected. So I wanted to capture that. And I, I've stayed and delivered other projects. Go back to why I was drawn to do a history degree in the first place. It was really to find ways to dialogue with kind of people that I grew up with, really. A big source of the work that I've done as a Heritage Lottery funded projects at Trinity has involved oral history and then also workshops, but meeting a wide cross-section of people, either who are interviewed and or share their resources with us, their memories, their photos, or as volunteers. And we've had some volunteers have taken part in workshops which have involved taking people to the Central Library, to the Bristol Record Office, just to see what resources are there and how they can research on behalf of the project, but hopefully that when our projects are over, that they will have an understanding of what rich material is available. And so having a cohort of people who feel confident in doing research is really valuable in our communities in Bristol. So we're about to start a new project called Art of Resistance. And that takes about five or six different activist movements over the last hundred years. So, for example, if we look at anti-fascism, that will include Mosley, but then now the anti-racist movements. Speaking of anti-racist movement in Bristol, do you want to talk about Colston coming down? Ooh, um, yeah. <laughs> I was there and um, I guess have been part of discussions and friends with other historians who've been working on initiatives to have the statue contextualised in the past. I've run workshops with the IC Visual Lab. We've taken students on journeys around the city to look at monuments. I've run slavery trails that have taken people around the city. And Colston has always been a part of that. I guess in some ways I, I was also thinking that there are different ways to contextualise Bristol's history. Also, in a sense, as a city, as the layers of meaning, layers of value and how values change. I suppose I had a different idea as to what would be the ultimate fate of the statue. And then you're there and then actually history happens in front of your eyes. <laughs> but then when a physical solid edifice is removed and there's this blank space, then it made me think, well, actually, maybe it had a lot more power than I've given it credit for. Maybe something in the sinks into your subconsciousness around the value of that permanency on the landscape. And then suddenly, when that permanency has been removed and there is now an open space, then this is where the new ground begins. This is where the 
the soil is turned over and we see what's underneath. The conversation just begins now and what they really the statue is about is competing narratives of British history. But it's the start of something which needs to go, I think, deeper and be more embedded. What are your views on the statue being displayed in Bristol Museum? I think it needs to be somewhere in the public eye to be understood. It's an interesting one where I guess so many things in the museum are taken out of context. So we are placing something which was a public art piece into a museum, which then doesn't quite tell you about the impact it was meant to have. So one alternative, I spoke to a friend who described how in Moscow they have a, a museum kind of park where old sculptures are taken and they're still in public display, but not in the spaces which they once occupied. They're seen as part of the past of the country and that they belong into the outdoor space. Certainly, I think it needs to be available to the public. I just wonder whether or not we can think creatively about what is the best way to preserve what it stood for in its context. I, I also want to honour the fact that um, we all can think differently about things as our understanding changes and grows. Um, yeah. What do you see as, as maybe the next challenges for Black Lives Matter or for the anti-racist movement generally in Bristol? I think it's, it's very difficult for a movement, and it is a movement, not a political party, to have a clear ask. But I think having clear asks are essential to preserving the energy and momentum. I was part of the Black Lives Matter movement march in Bristol in 2016. And what I've seen is this second wave in response to the death of George Floyd has been tremendous and has brought a bigger range of intergenerational activists, much wider response from white friends, allies, people of colour generally as well. But energies need focus and direction if they're not to dissipate. And because it's not that I think people lack commitment, it's knowing what to do with it, knowing what to do with one's energies. And myself and my colleagues at Trinity, colleagues of African diasporic heritage, we came up with 10 things that people can do. Uh, others across the country doing similar things. But also people are crying out for knowledge and libraries are a great place to find out more. We've referenced in our conversation, Afua Hirsch, Akala. There's a range of older writings as well. Keenan Malik, Ron Ramdin, Peter Fryer, David Olashogu, Stephen Bourne. Marika Sherwood, Lola Young, Bell Hooks. Um, there's a lot of structural stuff that needs to be done. We can't just see racism as about, you know, people's personal values and ways of behaving. There are structural things and systemic things we can, we can do and we can be reflective on. But I also think there are ways of checking out how we see each other, see the world, how free we are and open to seeing the possibilities of each other. The legacy of the transatlantic slave trade is to create a, a particular trope around blackness, whether it's 
black aggression, loudness, wildness, violence, hypersexualization, and so on. And these tropes are sustained and revived, sometimes by politicians for editorial reasons, and sometimes within our visual culture. And if you are socialized into them, both explicitly and implicitly, then it's very difficult for them not to get wired into your instinct. So the murder of George Floyd, for me, was really a response to a much more pernicious and pervasive malaise, which is around the troping of black people as agents of violence primarily. So he wasn't a man, he wasn't an individual, he wasn't a person, he was this other that was potentially violent. This goes to the heart of the disproportionate levels of violence. This goes to the heart of explaining away the marginalization of people, economic or, and in other ways, that they're not fully human. I think in a sense, what Black Lives Matter is about is trying to recite us back into our humanness. And I think in some ways, the reason why it's been so powerful is that the pandemic has been um, about empathy. It's kind of created the, the groundwork for us to be more caring of each other. Have you got time to give us a, a poem or two before you go? Yes. So British society is like an onion, and I guess most of the time we just don't see the layers. And there's something about the starkness of the slowdown, where you see the levels of difference of poverty and deprivation and so on. He is 50 shades of grey, not in an erotic way. More the winter sky wash of an unfinished watercolour. Grey and white streaked tallow thick greased strips fall from thinning paint, draping narrow shoulders covered by faded ash grey leather, just fitting his 2D slim frame. A hand like shaking parchment reaches out and down, searches and scoops up red top, revealing grey wrist support extending back up the unbuttoned sleeve. He shuffles on granite grey coarse and suede walking shoes. Pleasantries explained. A quivering dull tone. He stuffs whiskey captains and cider cans inside a carrier, bag pulled from his pocket. Last, the paper. A fumbled panic folded and shunted inside, a flash of pink neon black lace, peeps from the top. His escape slips as he exits. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. Oh, cool. And I'll just read. We dip on front line, from doctor to porter, long time. We dip on front line from nurse to health visitor, long time. We dip on front line from cab to coach driver, Long time. We dip on front line from corner shop to retail worker. Long time. We dip on front line from social to support worker. Long time. We dip on front line from builder to reception worker. Long time. We dip on front line from security to cleaner. Long time. Asian, Caribbean, African. Wherever, with a front line, 
Cause of that, we first in line to die. That's beautiful, thank you. Wow, yeah, wow, that's really powerful, thanks. Moving, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and thank you for being so generous with your time. I know we've taken up lots of your time this morning. Too. No, it's been great. It's been a really lovely, wide-ranging, you know, discussion. Uh, thank you. Huge thank you again to Dr. Edson Burton for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Bristol Libraries. And you can use the hashtag ShelfLifeBristol. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Shelf Life. Please subscribe, rate and review us wherever you listen. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at library.ideas at bristol.gov.uk. Or find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Bristol Libraries. We hope to see you again for the next episode of Shelf Life.